Good morning. How are you? Doing good? Uh, before um, we actually have our sermon, a couple things. Um, in a moment, I'm going to have Rob Welch come up and share. You all know Rob? Yeah. For his glory ministries. Dot org, not com. Um, if you go to dot com, you get some weird guy. Uh, anyway, uh, trust me on that. Um, he's going to share about uh, an upcoming trip to Africa that he's leading, and he's going to invite us to pray about possibly going with him. So when he shares, I'd like you to be prayerful. Uh, just asking the Lord if the Lord might be calling you to support and be involved in what he's doing. Before we do that, I wanted to share about um, a unique way that you can reach many lives for Jesus Christ. Um, what if I told you that you could impact thousands of lives for Jesus? What if I told you that you could lead hundreds of thousands of people to Jesus Christ? What if I told you that you could establish two of the greatest evangelistic ministries in the history of the world? What if I told you you could do that right here at Liberty? Would you want to do that? You want to do that? Well, let me tell you about a lady named Henrietta Mears. You've probably never heard of her. But she is responsible for leading millions of people to Jesus Christ. She's responsible for establishing one of the premier evangelistic organizations in the world. She's responsible for perhaps the, the, the most influential college ministry in the world. Well, what, what am I talking about? I'm talking about the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. And I'm talking about Campus Crusade for Christ, now called CREW. Well, you might be thinking, how did I never hear of Henrietta Mears? How did she do this? Did she have a lot of money? Was she a big donor? Well, actually, she wasn't. She was a little old lady that taught Sunday school. And in her Sunday school class, she had two young boys, Billy Graham and Bill Bright. And she taught them the Bible and led them to Jesus. And they have led millions to Jesus Christ. Now, we have a catechism ministry here where you can impact these little lives. And if you can see these children, whether they're yours or someone else's, through the eyes of faith, you may be leading the next Billy Graham to Jesus Christ. You may be catechizing the next Bill Bright. Wouldn't that be awesome? So you have that opportunity right here and right now. And so I'm, I'm inviting you to participate in God's program for reaching the nations. But we have to reach our own first, right? We have to train our own. And we have to believe that God will use the lives of those, those in our midst to do great things for God. I believe God can do that. I believe God is still has great plans for many of you to do wonderful things for Him. Um, you know, my wife is, is uh, one of, in the leadership team at Thrive, and, and they're literally saving lives. Now think about this. This is not figurative. Liter- literally saving lives every day. Think about it. Children that are, that are headed for an abortion clinic are, are saved. Their lives are saved. Thousands every year. And it's growing. Who would have ever thought? When I met her and she was a teenager and she didn't know her her head from her foot. You can ask her. Who would have thought? God takes lives and does wonderful things. And God wants to take our lives and God wants to take the lives of our children and he wants to use them for his kingdom purposes. Okay? And we need to partner with God in this. Okay? Teaching catechism, even serving in the nursery, these are not insignificant things. You can impact a life for Jesus, and you have no idea where Jesus will take that life. So you labor in faith, knowing your labor is not in vain. 
You labor in faith. So we, we need you to volunteer and you need to participate in, in building God's kingdom. And it seems trivial and it seems insignificant. But if Henrietta Mears had said, well, my class isn't important, how the world might have been different. And not for the better. But she didn't. And we shouldn't either. Many of you need to volunteer and serve in this ministry. You are able, and I believe many of you are called, and you need to listen to that call of God to do that. God is giving you an opportunity to be part of what He is doing on the earth. It is not a little thing to serve His little ones. It is not a little thing. So, um, Jake, pass that around. Pass that around. Oh, you have it in your hand? Just pass it around. Okay. We need you to sign up. I encourage you to sign up and be part of what God is doing. God is doing wonderful things in the lives of our little ones. When, while, while you're passing all around, I also want to invite Rob up. And, and he's going to talk about another opportunity where you can reach many lives for Jesus. Let's welcome Rob this morning. Will this do? Sure. Sure. It's good to be with you this morning. Uh, glad to be back. I was here, uh, was it a couple weeks back for your discipleship conference? That was a joy. Um, before I do anything else, let me just pray. Father, I just want to thank you for how you're at work here at Liberty. I'm grateful, Lord, for the the hearts here that are yours. Uh, Lord, you desire people who seek your face. You desire people who love you and who worship you and who give themselves for you. And I thank you for everyone here who has done that. I thank you, Lord, for the heart for the gospel here. I pray that you'd increase in us a heart for the gospel. Jesus, you came to seek and to save that which is lost. And I thank you uh, that you've rescued us, all of us who know you, Lord. We're grateful for that. And Lord, in the short time I have, I just pray that you'd speak through me and you'd speak to hearts. Lord, open our eyes, open our minds, open our hearts, expand our vision to see what you are doing and to say, Lord, here am I, send me. So, Lord, speak now, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Let me just read a passage of Scripture, and then I'll share with you a little about uh, what's upcoming for our ministry. Uh, And this is a passage that God used to stir my heart to surrender to His call. And some of you know this passage well. It's in Romans 10. Hear the word of the Lord. Beginning with verse 8. But what does it say? The word is near you. In your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, one believes and is justified. And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. For the Scripture says, everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? 
As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those that preach the good news. I'll stop there. God used that passage in 2000 to stir me up. God used that to light a fire that has not gone out. And since God used the missionary to share that passage with me and talk about the first believers in a people group in western China, uh, God has been doing incredible things in and through me, and I'm so grateful for that. And I want to talk to you today very briefly about uh, an upcoming mission we have and how you could come with us and, and also partner with us in prayer and financially. But more than that, to encourage you to consider going with us. Uh, we've got a mission uh, coming up this summer, July 30th to August 11th, and I have details. Anybody that's interested at all, see me after the service. I've got the information. I've got the details. I'd love to share with you, but see me. I've got that. Uh, we're going uh, to a place in, in the Democratic Republic of Congo called Goma. It's a city of about a million people, and there are another million people in the surrounding area. And this area has been war-torn. For the last 20 years, Eastern Congo has been dealing with, with civil war and conflict and tribalism. People have been fleeing for their lives. Many have, have uh, moved to other countries. They've been displaced. Uh, they, uh, some have been displaced internally within Congo. Uh, but there has been unrest. And Goma has had uh, two uh, civil wars uh, where there have been uh, great loss of life, along with people that uh, fled uh, the militia in the Rwandan genocide in 94, fled through Goma to get out of the country. So uh, Goma has experienced a lot. It's a broken place. It's a desperate place. And for several years, because of the unrest, there there's not been somebody to go there and preach the gospel. But recently, this area has been stable, and we have an open door to go and minister there this summer, and we are believing God for incredible things. And we are looking to bring a team of about 30 people to come with us to preach the gospel. The pastors there, we're expecting to work with hundreds of churches. The pastors there are thinking that we might have a million people come out over five days of ministry and as we preach the gospel at the festivals. We're going to have discipleship conferences. We're going to have a women's conference. We're going to, Lord willing, have a marriage conference. We're going to have a youth conference. We're going to be ministering in universities. We're going to be ministering in schools. If God opens the door, we're going to be ministering in prisons. Uh, but we are looking for people that will come with us and join with us in the harvest. This isn't a work we can do alone. And I know many of you here have a real heart for the Lord and have a real heart for missions. And I want to invite you to prayerfully consider going with us. I believe that we will see over 200,000 people give their hearts to Christ. If you want to see God move as you never have, if you want to live in the book of Acts, if you want to see God heal and deliver and set people free in every sense of the word, if you want your vision for God to be expanded and you can get on a plane and travel to Africa, you're physically able and you're physically able to move around because it's going to be an active trip, then I invite you to prayerfully consider coming with us. We need teachers. We need preachers. We need prayers. We need people willing to go and just show the love of Jesus to people. We're going to be ministering in churches. We're going to be ministering in hospitals. We may be ministering in orphanages. In fact, that's very likely. We're going to be ministering all over. But we can't do it without others joining us in the work. So I want to invite you to prayerfully consider coming. I would love to talk with you after the service about what it means to come with. 
And if you'd like to just get behind us in prayer or giving or both, we certainly welcome that as well because we need many people lifting up our arms. So uh, if you'd like to learn more about Goma Congo and coming with us, Please see me afterwards. I'll give you the details. I'd be happy to meet with you. Or if you'd just like to learn about For His Glory and what we're doing and how you can be a part, I'd love to meet with you as well. Uh, I want to honor your time. Uh, thank you, David, uh, for allowing me to share. I'd love to talk with you further. Brother, it's all yours. Um, just in case somebody can't sure. grab you, give your phone number. Yeah, my phone number is 636 636- Eight seven five eight one eight three, and I will put business cards out there on a table okay. along with some other information. And there also will be a sign-up sheet for if you're interested in coming. But I'd really like to talk to you if you have an interest and answer your questions. What a, give your website out. Uh, website is uh, forhisglorymen.org. That's f o r h i s g l o r y m i n. Dot org, and that's on our materials as well. So, I'll so what if someone is like, "Well, I don't know that I can do this one, but maybe a future." You have several we, plans. This we year? have we have three. I, I was short because I really wanted to honor the time. But let me give a quick thank you. Uh, we have three missions coming up this year. We actually have one in less than six weeks. If you want to come with us to Kenya, we got room. <laughs> I didn't throw that out there because I thought, well, a lot of you six weeks is short time. We still could use a couple people there. That's April 23rd to May 5th, and that's ministering to the Maasai. Uh, the next mission is to Goma, Congo this summer, and that's the one where we're looking to bring a big team. We're hoping to bring about 30 people there. That's July 30th to, to August 11th. And then we have a mission in the fall to South Sudan, Lord willing, and that really is an invitation only. Uh, if you've been on several missions and you're kind of a Green Beret Christian that have been in, in rough environments. Dan Benson. Okay, go uh, it's, no, no, Goma is not, a, Goma is not going to be a country club, guys. We'll be staying in a nice hotel because it's secure and we're going to be having armed security where we're going. But, uh, uh, South Sudan, uh, that, you know, let me know, but we're going to be very selective <laughs> on that one. Uh, but then we're going to have trips again next year, and we're looking to have three international trips a year, and we'd love to have people come with us. So if you want to learn more, uh, please uh, talk with me. and be happy to share. And Great. Uh, thanks, David. All right, brother. Thank you. Just set it on my Bible. We're good. All right. Thanks, brother. Thank you. Well, after that, um, serving the catechism is a piece of cake, right? <laughs> Pick your poison. Open your Bibles, if you would, to, book, to the book of Mark. I do encourage you to, to prayerfully consider if God would have you go on one of the trips with Rob. Or maybe you can't go, but you can give. Certainly we can all pray. Amen. I know some of you are already supporters of the ministry. Of, uh, for his glory, so we encourage that also. Book of Mark, verse 9 it says, And it came to pass in those days the J- one. Where I left off last week, it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. Then a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. And he was there in the wilderness forty days, tempted by Satan, and was with the wild beasts. And the angels ministered to him. Um, we're going to look at the temptation of Jesus today, and there are so many lessons here. Of course, we're only going to get a cursory view of it. Um, one of the striking things about uh, Mark is that Mark tells us very little. If you read Matthew and Luke, you get a lot of detail about the what happened in the temptation. In Mark, it's, it's a short version. 
Um, but then he adds other things the other evangelists don't tell us. And I think that there's a reason for that, for the shorter version, and that is Mark is trying to get us to see the link between the baptism and the preaching ministry of Jesus. In other words, he's trying to get us to see that there's a progression of events here that are all connected and they are necessarily connected. And I think you will see that as we go on today. So let's first talk about the combatants in this battle or in this testing. Uh, Jesus is mentioned and the devil. It's important that the word Jesus is used here and not Christ because Jesus is the human name of the Christ. And uh, it's interesting that Mark's gospel opens by saying this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Jesus, his humanity, Christ, his ministry, and Son of God, his deity. All right there in the first verse. If you look at the other temptation accounts, you see that the devil attacked the sonship of Jesus. But Mark doesn't mention that. He just asserts in verse 1 of chapter 1, he is the Son of God. And then in when he recounts the baptism, God speaks from heaven and says, You are my son, and the sonship of uh, Jesus is not, is not in question. He doesn't even allude to it in the temptation. And it's because I believe that, that the focus of Mark here is to stress the humanity of Jesus, and that when he confronted the devil, he did so as a man. As a man. Granted, the perfect man, but he was also to be the perfected man. The perfected man. Jesus encountered the devil as a man, but he also encountered the devil as our representative, what we call the second Adam, right? The second Adam. Uh, hold your place, we'll come back in a moment. Look at Romans 5. Romans 5, verse 12, it says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, who is that man? Say it again. Very good. As by one man sin entered the world, and death through sin... But wait a minute, I thought Eve was the one that sinned first. Then why does he say one man? Hmm. Let's go on. And thus death spread to all men because all sinned. For until the law of sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there's no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, not Eve to Moses. Even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. Who is he to come? Jesus. So Adam is a type of Jesus. Well, the 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 tie the anti-type fulfills the type. Okay, so there's a, a similarities and there are differences, and so Paul gives us a list here of similarities and differences. Verse fifteen. But the free gift is not like the offense, for if by the one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man. Jesus Christ abounded to many. And I'm not going to read the whole thing because it's long and intricate. But verse 19. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. So we see that there's a parallelism between Adam and Christ. Adam is the first man, and when Adam fell, he fell not only for himself, he fell as the representative of the human race. And when he fell, we all fell. And all of humanity fell in him. So God sends a Redeemer and, and to, to rectify the effects of the fall, and this Redeemer had to be a human person. It had to be another man. And like the first man, he had to experience a time of probation, a time of testing, a temptation, if you will. And so Jesus is into the wilderness, not by happenstance. He is led or driven, compelled there by the Spirit, and he is there as our representative. 
And so what we have unfolding here is a scene similar to the scene that took place in the garden. We'll talk more about that in a moment. But let's look at the antagonist. Jesus is the protagonist and the antagonist is the devil, the accuser, um, the man-hater, the man-destroyer, the thief, the robber, the murderer. That's the devil, the liar. Amen? Think of anything evil and then put it on the devil. Because Jesus says he is the father of it. It was all birthed out of him. The devil is a real personality, not a mere influence, not, a, not, not, not the effects of, of bad environment or bad culture or bad genetics or bad whatever. There's a real evil in the world, and it's not just a principle, but it is a person called the devil. You know, one of the, one of the greatest tricks of the devil was to paint a picture of himself as a little horned guy with a tail and a pitchfork. Because when you look at that, you laugh and you think, that's silly. I don't believe in that. Well, I don't believe in that either. What we learn from Scripture is that actually the devil was an archangel, was actually the supreme created being. The supreme angel. He was the cherub that covered the throne of God. And so the, the devil was in the presence of God before he fell. And he covered the mercy seat. He had his arms outstretched and the light of the glory of God reflected off of him and made him beautiful. But then scripture tells us that one day the devil, instead of keeping his gaze on the glory, he looked at himself and he saw his own beauty. The problem is it wasn't his own beauty. It was God's beauty reflected off of him. Because once he was cast from the light of God's presence, he no longer was beautiful. But now he was fallen, and he was disfigured, and he was ugly. Paul says he's an angel of light because he attempts to mimic what he was. He attempts to appear good, but in fact, he is evil And he is only evil. And he is evil always. And he comes against Jesus just as he came against our first parents in the garden. Those are the, the, the combatants. Now let's look a little bit at the scene of the temptation. Back in Mark... Mark says that Jesus went into the wilderness. In verse 13, he was there in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan, and was with the wild beasts, and the angels ministered to him. The wilderness here, of course, is is a reminder of the effects of the fall. Adam was placed in a garden, and by his sin, turned the garden into a wilderness. Jesus is placed in a wilderness, and by his obedience, he will turn the world into a garden. So we have, we have the antitype of Adam, the second man, placed in a similar but contrasting position. And when you think about the garden versus the wilderness, what you see is that Adam had everything going for him. And Jesus had nothing going for him. Adam's in a perfect environment, uh, beautiful, a beautiful place. I'm assuming the climate was nice, food to eat, water to drink, um, good-looking wife. I mean, he had everything, right? He has everything that he could want, that sense could want, that, that bodily appetite could want. And yet... Even though he has everything, he chooses the one thing that God had forbidden him. That one tree. Here's Jesus placed in a contrasting environment where Jesus, he is in a howling wilderness. No fruit, no streams, no water, no food. He's hungry. He's thirsty. The exact opposite of Adam's environment. 
And you would think, well, if I were to lay it to you, which of these people is going to sin? Well, you would say, Jesus. Because everything in the scene is conspiring against him, right? Some think that the, the wild beasts are mentioned here because uh, Mark is trying to emphasize the hostility of the environment. Not only is Jesus in the wilderness, he's in a wild place. He's in danger, if you will. That's possible. Some think, think that the beasts are mentioned because Mark is trying to, to drop hints about the parallel. Just as Adam was in the garden, and he was the Lord of creation, the Lord, he named the animals, Jesus is now in the wilderness, and he is also the Lord of nature. I think the, the, the beasts are mentioned possibly for a third reason, and that is because Mark is emphasizing the humiliation of Jesus. And as we see, Mark's theme in this gospel is to highlight Jesus as the servant of Jehovah. Now, I could give a long, and maybe a later time we'll talk about this more, but there's a reason there's four gospels and not one. And that's because each gospel highlights a different aspect of the character of Jesus. And it is Mark's job, if you will, to highlight the fact that Jesus is a servant. And the beasts, of course, were beasts of burden, if you will. And so Mark may be uh, drawing attention to the fact that Jesus is humiliated and put to the level of a beast of burden, if you will. Because he is Jehovah's servant. In any case, what we have here is a scene which is diametrically opposed to what happened in Eden. Oh, by the way, the angels are mentioned too. And if you remember in the garden, we know that there were cherubim there also. So we see this uh, similar but contrasting scene. So Jesus is put in the most inhospitable environment, contrasted Adam, and yet he endures the temptation of the evil one. <clears throat> and whereas Adam fell, Jesus holds fast. Amen? Notice also the time of the temptation. The, the time of the temptation was both after... And before, after and before. What do I mean? It was after the baptism. After the baptism comes the battle. After the affirmation comes the temptation. After the dove comes the devil. And it was after because Jesus identified himself with humanity. Thus he must be tempted like humanity. Remember, when we talked about the meaning of Jesus' baptism, it was not for the forgiveness of sins. He didn't need to be forgiven. But it was, it was a, an act of identification where he entered in, if you will, publicly identifying himself with a fallen human race, even though he was not fallen. But like them, he must be tempted. But the baptism also signified God's affirmation of Jesus Jesus identifies with humanity, but God identifies with Jesus. He says, you are my son. He affirms it, and he certifies it. But Jesus then has to go into the wilderness, and the sonship is tested or proven in trial. His temptation was a testing of his character and of his calling. So it's after the baptism, but it is before his public ministry begins. In one sense, you could say Jesus' ministry really began in private. Because had he failed here, there would have been no public ministry. The temptation proved, and that's what testing means in Scripture, it proved him to be exactly who God the Father had said that he was, his beloved Son. So it's after the baptism, but it's also before his entrance into public ministry. That is the temptation. Are you listening? Yes. The temptation was preparation. Let me say it again. The temptation was preparation. 
He must be victorious in private before he can be valiant in public. And we'll talk more about this before we close. But let's talk about a moment the duration and length of the temptation. We're told that Jesus was there 40 days and 40 nights. The number 40 has a moral significance in the Bible. Remember, Moses, for 40 days, was in the mount. Matter of fact, on two different occasions, 40 days. Elijah was 40 days in Horeb. Jonah said to Nineveh, you have 40 days to repent. Jesus, three times, um, experienced a 40-day cycle. First There was 40 days before he was presented in the temple as an infant. Here, it's 40 days in the wilderness. And then after he was resurrected, it was 40 days before the ascension. Clearly, 40 is an important number, right? And it's the number that points to probation or preparation. When Moses went up into the mount, God said, come up to the mount. He went up to the mount. And then he just sat there. And he sat there. And he sat there. And he sat there for 40 days. And then God spoke. We can hardly sit in God's presence 40 minutes. 40 days. Why did God do that? Because Moses needed 40 days to get the fog out of his head. To be surrendered to the call and the revelation of God. Jesus was in the wilderness 40 days as preparation for his ministry. And so he was Tempted throughout the 40 days. That is, Jesus was tempted the entire period. Now, if you read just uh, one of the gospel accounts, you might get the impression that, that Jesus was there 39 days, and then on the 40th day, the devil came and tempted him. But he was actually tempted. I believe that the three temptations mentioned in Matthew and Luke were actually on the last day, when he was the most vulnerable. But I think he was tempted the entire time. It was the last attempt, the last great attack at the end. But he was tempted the entire period. This suggests that the testing was both comprehensive and intense. Comprehensive and intense. It was, it was needful that Jesus would be tested entirely. And in order to be tested entirely, he had to be tested intensely. He suffered being tempted. That points to the intensity of it. But he was tempted in all points, the Word of God says. And that that talks of the comprehensive nature of his temptation. Fifthly, the necessity of the temptation. Because Jesus was our representative, the second Adam, because he came to save us from sin... Because he came to destroy the works of the devil, it was necessary that he must be tempted. It was by divine appointment that Jesus went into the wilderness. He did not stumble there. He was led there. Or as Mark says, he was driven there. He was cast out. Ekbalo. He was cast out there. It was... God's plan and appointment to have Jesus tested and proven it was because it was an essential preparation for his calling. Indeed, how could, how could he regain paradise without in, entering the wilderness? How could he destroy the power of death without confronting the one who had the power of death? How could he defeat evil without defeating and confronting the evil one? He couldn't. See, the problem is we have is we want victory. We just want, don't want to combat. Right? But you can't win if you don't fight. You cannot conquer without conflict. So Jesus came to conquer the evil one, so we had to confront him. He came to defeat the evil one, so we had to be uh, confronted with the evil one comprehensively and intensely. Now, I think... You know, when you go in and read Mark, um, when Jesus began his ministry, all the demons start freaking out, right? Well, they do. It's bizarre. And what do they say? We know you! We know you! How do you think they knew him? 
I think the devil told him. I think the devil said, I just spent 40 days trying to destroy this guy, and he kicked my rear end. Watch out. The outcome of the battle was victory for Jesus. But he conquered not only for himself, he also conquered for his people. Because remember, when he was baptized, he was baptized into our humanity, if you will. And when we are baptized, we are baptized into him. He is our redeemer and our representative. And what is his becomes mine. And as Jesus obeyed during this time of testing, his obedience is imputed to me for my righteousness. So I partake of what he accomplished there. His victory becomes my victory. Well, there's many, many lessons, but I only only have time to mention a few. The first is this. As the second Adam, Jesus regained all that the first Adam lost. He regained everything that the first Adam lost. Now, we do not yet see the full accomplishment of what he regained, but in time we shall see it. We are told in Romans that now the creation groans, being subjected to vanity, but eventually it will be, it will enter into the liberty and the manifestation of the sons of God. That's us, the redeemed. And that not only will we be glorified, but the entire creation will then enter into the redemptive work of Jesus. And then the earth again will be placed under our feet, and we will have dominion, a righteous dominion. A righteous dominion. Secondly, Jesus had to bind the strong man in order to accomplish his ministry. He had to meet the devil and defeat him if he was going to set people free from bondage and sin. Someone say amen. Amen. And this is why throughout the gospel accounts we see so many manifestations of, of of evil, of unclean spirits, and spirits of infirmity, and and, uh, things of this nature. Because these spirits understand who Jesus is. They understand that he came to destroy them, to cast them out. And so Jesus meets the strongest of the host of evil, Satan himself, and he binds him, he defeats him. And then he enters his house, if you will, and plunders it. He plunders the Satan's household, by taking those who are captive and setting them free. Thirdly, Jesus had to learn obedience and sympathy by the things that he suffered being tempted. Um, We read this text last week, but look at it again. Look at Hebrews 2, verse 9. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, that's you and I, to make the captain of their salvation, that's Jesus, perfect through sufferings. Perfect through sufferings. Then he goes on and he says, verse 14, Inasmuch then as the children have have uh, partaken of flesh and blood, that's the children being us, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him with the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed he does not give aid to the angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore in all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest and things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people, for in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. There is no temptation that we have experienced that Jesus does not understand. Now, I remember years ago, I was dealing with some fatherhood issues. And I said to Jesus, I said, Lord, you know, you don't understand because your father was perfect. And then he reminded me of the cross. Where on the cross he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where his father turned his back on him. He did understand. Then years later, I remember talking to the Lord about my marriage. I said, Lord, you don't understand what it's like to be married. Because when you were in the earth, you were single. 
he said, uh, you're forgetting I have a bride. It's called the church. <laughs> and if you think your wife is tough, you ought to try mine. <laughs> he understands. He understands all of our temptations. He was tempted comprehensively. He was tested thoroughly. He was tested intensely. Jesus understands. Thus, he is qualified to be a sympathetic and a merciful high priest. We, this, this is why it is so important as we look at the gospel to remember his humanity. That Jesus understands he was tempted as a man. He suffered as a man. He was hungry and thirsty as a man. Chapter 4 of Hebrews, verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, His humanity and His deity right there. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize, or to put it in the positive, we do have a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. How so? Because in all points he was tempted like we are, yet without sin. And so what is the application of that? Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Listen, when you're going through something hard, you want sympathy. You don't really want answers. You want sympathy. You want to talk to somebody that understands. Somebody that's been there. Jesus has been there. He understands. And there is no trial or temptation or suffering or affliction that Jesus does not understand. There's no reason that we should not go to Him and go to Him boldly. And the Word of God says that when we go to Him, what we will find will be what? Mercy and grace. Because He understands. It is a throne of grace for the Christian, not a throne of judgment. Next lesson, private preparation precedes public performance. This was true of Jacob, Joseph, Moses, David, Elijah, Jesus, and every one of us. Let me say it again. Private preparation precedes public performance. What Jesus was in public, his power... His, his, so much of what he was in his public ministry was directly linked to what he was in private. And all throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus ministers to the multitudes. He teaches, he heals, he feeds. Then, what does it say? He went up to the mount. His public ministry is punctuated by private devotion. The two go hand in hand. In fact, it is, it is better to say the private precedes the public. The foundation of the house is unseen, but everything's built upon it. And what we do in private may be unseen, but our public life is built upon it. So our private prayer leads to public power. Amen? Private meditation leads to public edification. Private fellowship leads to public fruitfulness. And the lack of these things in public is, is evidence of the failure in private. It is more important what you do in private than what you do in public. And so much of what we read, so many of the complaints that we read today about the church and all the... I read another, another blog even this morning. Another new ministry to fix the church. You know what? If every professing Christian was the real deal in private, we wouldn't need all these ventures in fixing the church. Being the church is not what we do on Sunday morning. What we do on Sunday morning is just a manifestation of what we do in private. 
So the reason many people abandon the church is because the church is barren. And it's barren because Christians are barren in their private life. It's the truth. It's a sad truth, but it's the truth. We watch more TV than read our Bibles. We spend more time on social media than prayer. And then we expect God to show up Sunday morning in power. But it doesn't happen. And it never will. We must go up the mount. We must go into the wilderness. Or as Jesus said, we must go into the closet and close the door. And in private, find God. And when we find him, we'll be like Moses because we'll come down from the mount and our face will shine. Or as it says in Luke, when after Jesus came out of the wilderness, you know what it said? He came out in the power of the Holy Spirit. He didn't go in in the power. He came out in the power. Do you want power in your life? You find it in private. You want victory in your life? You find it in private. Church is not a substitute for our private communion and devotion to Jesus Christ. It is a manifestation of it. Don't shout me down now. Last point. Like Jesus, we also need to be tested. It is part of our calling. It is part of our preparation for ministry also. James 1, you're very familiar with it, but please turn there with me. In James chapter 1, James says in verse 2, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have her perfect work or complete work, that you may be perfect and complete or mature and whole, lacking nothing. Now, it sounds crazy to say rejoice in testing because testing by its very nature is not enjoyable. If it was enjoyable, it wouldn't be a test. Okay? It wouldn't be a test. Read the book of Job. That was a test. Right? Um, we are called to be tested because we need to mature. We need to grow. We need to be entire. And I can assure you of this, the more that you're filled with the Spirit, the more the devil is going to come after you. Because the more of the dove, the more of the devil, right? Those who are anointed are those who are attacked. And just like Jesus, after the baptism comes the battle. That's why Peter said, don't think it's strange that these fiery trials are coming against you. And if Jesus needed to be tested or proven in preparation for his ministry, how much more do we? How much more do we? Because these trials and temptations are designed by God to sanctify our character, to increase our faith, to make us endure in battle. The Christian life is a fight. You have The promised land is promised, but when you read the account of Joshua, they had to fight and take it. They had to take it. And there's a real battle involved. So we must be tempered, if you will, in private. We must be disciplined, trained, equipped, so that we can fulfill our calling as Christians. And so God, in His great, not only His great love for us, but God, in His great love for the world, trains us because we are the means of reaching the world. We are the means. One author said this, he said, Most of us need the chastening of affliction. Pain is a wonderful revealer. It teaches us many things we never could have known if we had not been called to endure it. It opens windows through which we see as we never saw before. The beautiful things of God's love. Many of the finest things in character are the fruits of pain. Many a Christian enters trial cold, worldly, unspiritual, and emerges from the experience a little later with spirits softened, mellowed, and spiritually enriched. 
Sanctified afflictions soften the harshness and sharpness of one's character. This is true. They consume the dross of selfishness and worldliness. They humble pride. In no other school do our hearts learn the lessons of patience, tolerance, and forbearance so quickly as in the school of suffering. So God, in His great love, as I said, not just for us, but for the world, allows us to be tried so that we would be equipped for our calling as Christians. And you know what our calling is? Our calling is to be like Jesus and do what Jesus did. We are called to fulfill, or should I say complete, or carry on the mission that he began on earth. We are called to preach the gospel. We are called to train men and women. We are called to feed the hungry. We are called to heal the sick. We are called to carry on the ministry of Jesus. Just because he's ascended doesn't mean that he's retired now. Okay, and some of you are in that age where you just want to retire. Guess what? You don't get to. Okay? You never retire from your calling as a Christian. If you're on the earth, listen, listen to me, you uh, classics. Listen to me. If you're on the earth, God has something important for you to do. Important. God has something important for you to accomplish. And you need to find out what it is and get to it because your time is short. Your time is short. I'm I'm planning my funeral already. You laugh, it's true. My time is short. We're we're living in this la-la land. We're all going to live to be 100 years old. It's not true. Within the next 5 or 10 years, we'll uh, we'll be putting some of you in the ground. It's true. And it's time to do what God has put you here to do. Whatever he's got left to do, do it now. Because once you're in the ground, you can't do it anymore. And when you stand before the Lord, what do you want him to say? You want him to say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. You want to be able to be like Jesus and say, Father, the things you've given me to do, I've accomplished. I've done the work that you've given me to do. Not only did I enjoy the great things you've given me to enjoy, but I've done the work you've given me to do. So what is God calling you to do? Where is He calling you to go? How is He calling you to serve? What is He calling you to give? Do it now because your time is short. And we labor in the victory of Jesus. We do not battle as those that are defeated. And we do not battle as those that are retreating. We battle as those who are advancing. And we battle as those who are conquering. The victory of Jesus in the wilderness led to the victory of Jesus on the cross, led to the victory of Jesus over the grave. And that is our victory. And we can walk in that victory and we can experience that victory. You can have victory in your life. You do not need to be subjected to sin, to Satan, to the world. You can be free and you can be victorious. It is ours. Jesus has earned it. Jesus has purchased it. Jesus has proven it. And it's ours and we enter into it by faith. By faith. Let us believe the word of God. You know, in the other accounts, and I'll close with this. Let's stand. Stand up. In the other accounts, we're told that when Jesus was tempted, the the three final temptations, the final onslaughts of of the enemy, how did Jesus respond? Every time, what did he say? He said, it is written. It is written. Say what you want, devil. I know the word of God, and the word of God is true. Do what you will, devil. Afflict my body, if you will, but I know the word of God is true. Steal my money, if you will. I know the word of God is true. 
This is how we need to think. This is how we need to live. The word of God is true. And if we stand on the word, we can defeat the enemy. We must exercise genuine, vital, daily faith in the written word of God. It is the sword of the spirit that God has given us. As you believe, you will experience victory. There is nothing in doubt but death. And God has never given us a reason to doubt his word. He is faithful and he is true. Amen? Amen. Lord, we thank you, Lord Jesus, for your victory over the evil one. We thank you, Lord, that you were humble enough to submit yourself to, to, to the humiliation of being tempted by him. We thank you, Lord, that you endured. And you endured not only for yourself, you endured for us. We thank you that your victory is ours. And I pray for each one of us that we'd walk by faith and that we would take hold of your victory by faith, that we'd walk in your power by faith. And I pray, God, that each one of us would spend time with you in private so we would be prepared for our calling in public. God, you have things for us to do. May we be about your Father's business. We pray in his name. Amen.